Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. Nathaniel Perlman is a DC-based entrepreneur. He is the founder of NGP Vam, the former chief technology officer of Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. He's currently serving as the president of Graphicacy, which is a data visualization and information graphics design company. Welcome today. Uh, hi, George. You've started several different businesses. We've just mentioned Graphicacy, but you've also had Time Plots and NGP Van. Can you talk about how you discovered your path as an entrepreneur? Uh, sure. I guess I I guess I came out of graduate school in the end of '96, look trying to figure out what to do with myself, and uh, had worked in as a programmer in the world of campaign software uh, before that and decided to start my own enterprise in that area. When you started these companies, I mean, did, did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur or was it kind of more something that you just saw an opportunity and decided to go for? I think what happened was I, I knew pretty well what I didn't want to do. I, I knew that I, you know, I had worked for a number of companies in my 20s and I, I had sort of each time I took a job, tried to find a smaller company, mm-hmm. more or less. Yeah. I, I felt I didn't like the bureaucracy of big companies. I didn't really like working for other people. I didn't like being a, a small cog in a big wheel. Right. Um, and so, and I and I wanted to find work at the intersection of my interests. And so, you know, I had I had worked as a programmer. I, I was a computer science major as an undergrad. I had a strong interest in politics. And had done graduate work in a PhD program uh, in, in government, and I wanted to find something that would kind of cover that. And so I started a political campaign software company in order to find myself, really, to find myself a job uh, there at the intersection of interests. Was it just a natural fit because you already had the political science background and you know the, the background working with technology? Or did it seem like you have to go through a kind of a soul-searching process before coming up with thinking that this is what you wanted to work on? No, I, I didn't know enough to think I needed soul-searching. <laughs> or, you know, I, I, I kind of knew myself well enough to think that that I, you know, that I, I basically just waded into it. I started to talk to people. Now, I had worked as a programmer on software like that before, and so I'd seen what some of the competition was doing. And I had, I think I had taken, uh, real lessons about how that I might want to do it in a different way. So I started the company, uh, as explicitly a partisan of working only for enterprise, working only for Democrats. And I also, I really wanted it to focus on, on the, on the sort of what we call customer service side and trying to just be, honest and straightforward and and do as much as we could to to assist the the fundraising firms and the campaigns that we that we wanted as clients so now what what challenges did you face when you first started ngp well the main challenge was that i was doing it 
on my own, mm-hmm. and I didn't uh, know much at all about how to run a business. So, you know, I wandered around the city talking to, to people, uh, you know, to, mm-hmm. to fundraising firms, and, and sort of finding out what they needed. And what I found was that most of these small firms were managing their data in something like WordPerfect or in uh-huh. lots of different spreadsheets, and that they and and so a lot of their effort was duplicated. Yeah. And so it wasn't it wasn't very romantic, but what I could see they needed a relational database and they needed a way to to make what they were doing more efficient. So I I built a pretty modest application, and you know, and sort of one by one acquired clients that that you know over time trusted me and referred me to to more people like them awesome. that's how the that's how the business started and it was mm-hmm. just me for two and a half years and it was uh, just me and a first employee for two more years after that and then it really started to take off and it's grown quite a bit and I think it's probably around 200 people now what, what would you say is your was your number one job whenever you started was it customer service was it the programming side of things was it sales what, what, what do you think you had to focus on mostly when you started? Uh, when I really, it was two things. It was building. So I, I, since it was just me, mm-hmm. it was building the the software. Yeah. And it was the relationship with clients. So getting clients and taking care of them. So listening to them when they wanted a new feature and implementing it. Trying to to find other people who would buy into it. So that's sales. But I really, you know, I really, um, you know, sort of learned that little by little by talking to people and by, you know, f- figuring out what their problems were. Now, Graphicacy and NGP are all DC businesses. What would you say, I mean, what kind of characteristic would you say describes the tech entrepreneurship scene here in Washington, DC? Why is it different than other tech hubs? Well, you know, I don't know everything about other tech hubs, but I have noticed that that uh, you know that DC seems to have a particular flavor to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, I've learned over time that there's just, you know, you know, I, you know, you hear these things about Silicon Valley or other parts of the country and and what they have to offer, but I've just found that there are tremendous resources here for people in all kinds of walks of entrepreneurship. I, you know, I, I've been a longtime member of uh, entrepreneurial forums where you get together with other business owners and talk about uh, the trials and tribulations of running a business and and sort of running a life while you're running a business. And that's been really helpful to me, sort of EO and Vistage and groups like that 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 are reasonably well-known, but I didn't know anything about until I'd run my business for a few years. Um, And then, you know, I know that there's, there's, you know, a substantial funding community. I didn't, I haven't sought funding myself, but I've, I've been advisor to or friend to others who have and done that successfully around here. And then there's, you know, the co-working places and incubators right. and, and just lots of knowledgeable people that, that, uh, that form a pretty good community, it seems to me. Yeah, and, and you're also involved with the, the data community DC group as well, right? Well, I, I, I recently spoke at a – I mean, I think you were there, right? Yes. I, I, spoke, I spoke about – uh, um, about our time plots and how we built information graphic posters 
at uh, at, a, at a, one of their meetups, and it was pretty well attended, and probably more than 100 people. And uh, you know, kind of amazed at how many folks are, you know, know a lot about that and have interest in that field, which was, you know really only getting going 10 years ago. Right. Or like yeah, and, and you actually talked about some of the time plots that you had created. Uh, there was one specifically that was about how the states got their borders and the history of that. I thought that was particularly interesting. How do you choose the ideas for these projects that you take on? Well, when I... So time plots, I, I think I started out by, by trying to do uh, visual histories of things that were... I guess fairly DC oriented national, you know, national institutions. The visual history of the Supreme Court and the American presidency and the U.S. House and the Senate um, and and yeah, the states and their boundaries and and the and the when we do one uh, on the budget. Those, you know, what appealed to me there was that I had studied American political history, so I knew something about it. I was interested in the data, and I was trying to acquire a reputation as somebody who could do data visualization and and that's become over time graphicacy which is a sort of services side of the business where we you know where our clients are people who have uh, data but want to tell the story that's embedded in that data to further their mission so that might be like a think tank that that uh that has done a research paper on immigration, like the Center for American Progress was a client of ours, Mm -hmm. where we built a series of interactives to let people explore projections about demographic change in the country and, and, and put together a motion graphic video that sort of took the distilled the key areas there and, and told that story in three minutes. So we, we like, you know, we like finding people who have good missions and and the right data and information that want to express that and and tell the story, you know, online, interactively or or, or sometimes statically on paper. We help them with that. So it's really it's an analytic design enterprise. Yeah, and I was looking at a list of your clients too, and you have some really interesting ones there, such as National Geographic magazine, uh, Stanford University. I saw you also work with Washington Post Labs on their Trove projects. How do clients find you typically? Is it based on you know the work that they've done, uh, you've done for clients in the past? Uh, is it kind of more word of mouth, or uh, has there been a surge in demand for people that are looking for visual information graphics? Yeah, I think it's been a mix. It's been um, you know I guess originally it was people in my network <laughs> or in Jeff or Jeff Osborne, who's our creative director, who he done work for. In the past, but it's you know it's gone out from that to referrals or people who've located us through our website or or, or seen work that we've done online. We would like to be uh, you know relatively choosy about our clients, so uh, uh, sometimes we reach out to people and, and suggest that that we could be helpful, and, and occasionally that works out. But it's a you know as it's a small firm, we don't. You know, we do uh, only a few projects at a time. You recently held the Major League Data Challenge. You had baseball as your theme in 2015, and this year it's the presidential nomination. Uh, can you talk about why the presidential nomination theme was important to you this year for the contest? Well, the purpose that for us in having these contests is to 
become more part of the community of people doing data visualization here in the DC metro area and elsewhere. Yeah. So, you know, so we started out, I just thought we would pick some prominent sources of data. And I don't know that we'll do, I think we might do more than one a year. Um, yeah, towards the end of last year, we did one where you, where we challenged people to visualize the careers of the best uh, pitchers and hitters in baseball history. And, that, and this time, since we're right in the middle of the presidential nomination process, we thought we'd have people try to tell the story visually of what's been going on in this campaign using actual data. But, uh, you know, I think really we're just looking for, uh, you know, a series of contests where, which test people a little bit to, to work from the data around a particular area of interest and, and produce something that's interactive online that tells that story. I mean, the presidential election this year has been kind of a spectacle. Do you think that the, the data is actually showing that if you were to report it um, with numbers? Well, I think, I think one of the nice things about, uh, about choosing data is that, one, you could say, – say you're just tracking the nomination process by polling, mm-hmm. right? There's an awful lot of up and down from the very beginning where maybe you had Jeb Bush high in the polling uh, to now where he's out. So you can see the story told in that kind of data right. or in the, or in the uh, like odds-making data that's out there. But you can also annotate any information with, uh, with text to say, hey, this is, what, this is why this happened at this point or this is what was going on. There, and there are just so many good stories in what's transpired that I think there's a lot of room for people to pick different angles on it mm-hmm. that we that we can't even anticipate and make something useful. And of course, there's there's some beautiful professional visualizations of the process right now that the New York Times or uh, other big media outlets have put together, where you can see you know the delegate chase and and sort of even uh, interactively move a lever and see you know if. Uh, Trump continues to win 38% of the vote, what he'll end up with or, or things like that. So I think there's, there, are, there are things to draw on for people entering the contest, but also they'll bring their own ideas and, and uh, lens to it. And I, I know you have an interest in history. Can you just speak to how history informs you know, what you do as a professional? I think one of the things that, that I think is important about looking at data is context. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot there's a lot of temptation to to take a little window into information. Like say you you might look say you're looking at an economic time series and you might be talking about the relationship between voting and the economy and you might be looking just at the time since you know 1980 to now and you see oh yeah when the you know when there's a bad economy then the then the party in power uh, loses an election. Well, if you look at that in the whole time series from the beginning of the Republic to now, mm-hmm. and you see, you know, you see almost like the, the fairly random behavior of the economy, <laughs> it seems much less related to politics than than, it's, than it might if you just look at a, a short period. So you don't think that there's a direct correlation? 
Oh, there's, I mean, it's definitely, it's a definitely an important effect and we know that from statistical studies, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, I think that, that a lot of times the conventional wisdom on something is very influenced by just, you know, sort of a recency bias or, or a small window of information and almost anything you're looking at benefits from broadening out the time period that you're looking at or showing more context on data. Do you think that there's a narrative that develops when you report a long enough period of history in a graphic that's printed out? I think the one that one of our posters that shows patterns the best, perhaps, is the visual history of the house where we chart the ideology of every member of Congress or every, you know, every member of the house from the beginning to recently, and what you see there is, a, a, you know, times in history where the two parties overlap a great deal in history, a, a great great deal. So that, like, uh, in the in the fifties and sixties, when you had a conservative Democratic South, you had and and more liberal Republicans in the North. The the two parties had you know Republicans who were to the left of, de- of some Democrats quite a few and and you can see that open up recently where where the parties are are really far apart and 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 just about every Republican is really conservative and just about every Democrat is to their left and you can see that visually it makes a kind of a beautiful pattern um, from real data. So when did that recently happen? Was there like an inflection point that all of a sudden you saw a divergence between the parties? There's been a there's been a pronounced ideological sorting that's been going on most you know more and more through the 80s. The the 94 election uh, was a big part of that, but you know but has happened uh, more or less in every election in the last 20 30 years produce the, the results that we see now. Yeah, and it, it's just interesting. It's so interesting to see it visually reported because you, you have the history going back to really the, the beginning of the country, and when you see it in a, in a graphic, it, it makes you think about things that are just random historical events uh, being stretched out over a very long period of time, and you get kind of a sense that, you know, the country has kind of like an equilibrium almost uh, that it returns back to. I, what, what I like about these, you know, these, like the Supreme Court poster, it's a large poster, it's 36 by 48. What I like about it is it helps me locate so, sort of visually where important things happen in history. So, if, you know, if, if I'm thinking about when a landmark case came to the court, I can see, I can see in my mind now where that, you know, that that's, you know, forty percent of the way through the nation's history, and yeah. I can, and I know what what other cases happened around it, and I can, I can kind of visualize who the judges were on the court then, and I can think about, you know, I can think about the tenures of the different presidents, and I can think about, you know, who had the most impact on the court. You know, so we met, we we counted up all the justice days that every president uh, created in their through their appointments, and we you know we sized a circle according to that on that poster, and so you can really see you know Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan and 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 some other presidents who had a lot of appointments 
really had a an outsized impact on the court. Yeah. You can see, and you can see in your mind's eye, even if the poster's not in front of you, because you've looked at it before. You can, you can, you, you can remember a lot and put things into place. And now, I mean, it seems like big data is just like a huge buzzword that you see everywhere now, from small startups to large enterprise businesses. And while it seems like it's a new trend in business, uh, I mean, you seem to have had a career that goes a lot longer back. How did you just begin your career in data visualization? Um, Well, I think what happened was I took a class as an undergraduate with a a statistics class with someone named Edward Tufte, Professor Edward Tufte. And he's, for people who know the field, he's probably the most well-known kind of guru of, of that. And yeah. he has a series of, of wonderful books that he self-published, built a press called Graphic Press to do that visual display of quantitative information and envisioning information and, and visual explanations and, uh, and I think beautiful evidence. Those four books are, are lovely examples uh, of how to do data visualization well. They're not the only uh, good works in that area, but uh, they're an excellent start. And so, you know, I didn't, I got very interested in it, in in what I, in that subject from learning from him. But then, you know, I, after that, I spent a lot of time in in grad school, graduate school, and and starting uh, NGP and work and running that for more than a decade. And when I was thinking about what next to do with my life, I kind of searched for previous interests and kind of restarted with that uh, some 20 years later. Um, just lastly, I wanted to talk about uh, your work with the, the Lever Fund. Uh, can you just please introduce for the listeners what the Lever Fund does and tell us about your work with them? Uh, yeah, uh, so I'm one of four co-founders of a uh, poverty-fighting grant-making Nonprofit called the Lever Fund. It's modeled after the Robin Hood Foundation in New York City, which is a very successful uh, enterprise up there. Uh, we uh, we raise money and grant it out to nonprofits that are doing good work, helping people climb out of poverty, raise their standard of living, and uh, and and I've been working on that for you know with with the other co-founders, and and recently we hired an executive director. Um, named Greg Cork, who's running it, and you know, just hoping to have a little impact on improving the life of, of neighbors up here. And uh, so, so you said the Robin Hood Foundation was your inspiration for uh, the Lever Fund. How, how did you get first introduced to them? Uh, so, one of my co-founders is a, a woman named Anne Marie Habershaw. She uh-huh. was the chief operating officer for the Obama Biden campaign, among other things, and. She was coming off that campaign, and she had seen a 60 Minutes piece on the Robin Hood Foundation, and she's and I guess think she thought we really should have this here, and we and so we were having lunch. She told me about that, and I actually had a friend whose younger brother had worked at Robin Hood who uh-huh. was living here, and I connected them, and they started to work on it, and they just kind of roped me into the into it to help them. Is it like an offshoot of the Robin, uh, the Robin Hood Foundation? We have their blessing and, yeah. and, and the use of their models, but it's an entirely different enterprise. Great. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to hear 
how uh, entrepreneurs uh, decide which ways they want to give back to their communities. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining me today. Sure, happy to. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dc-entrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.